Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. How was your week? A good week? What does that mean when we say that? A good week here in Santa Barbara compared to a week in Des Moines, Iowa right now. <laughs> or even worse, how does a person in Ukraine answer that question today? A person in Gaza. How does a persecuted Christian answer that question in Afghanistan or Iran? A good week? I had a good week. I didn't have to deal with the HOA this week at all. But you know, I also had to send in my quarterly taxes, and that was painful. What does it mean when we say, I'm doing good? I've asked several of you this morning, how are you? And you give me a stock answer. I don't know if it's from your heart or not. Doing pretty good. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does it look like? The concept of good is in our text. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, the last verse of the chapter, we'll get to it specifically next week, but there we read these words, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Not just good, it was very good. In what way? What does that mean? What did that look like? The Hebrew word tov, it means useful, fitting, or healthy. And it especially, in applied to life, it's whatever enhances or is conducive to life. Whatever is beneficial, especially for people, that is, in Hebrew, tov. That is good. This is opposed to the kind of rigid, narrow asceticism that has so often been present in history, that it's wrong to enjoy things, it's, it, it's wrong to, to appreciate good blessings. On the other hand, God is a God who is good. And he blesses us in life. The contemporary term we use for this is human flourishing. God, when he created all things, he pronounced all of it a condition that would provide for human flourishing. It was very good. In Genesis chapter 1, it records the creator's arranging and unfolding of his good creation. The good place he made. The garden, the, the earth the good world that he created. We looked at it last week. I believe that Genesis, verses, Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 have to do with the, the ultimate creation at the beginning, the creation of the heavens and earth. And then we read in verse 2 that the earth in that original state was without form and void. It was unfinished, as it were. The universe may well be ancient in my view, but What's clear is that God begins to create. He begins to create and he takes six days to do it. The status in verse 2, if you look at it again, if you're with me in Genesis chapter 1, is the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God begins his immediate creation of our biosphere of this earth. The earth's creation begins here. And it reveals much about our Creator. And that's what we'll do this morning. 
uh, let me warn you again, we won't answer every question you have. We won't resolve every dilemma that exists in our hearts as we try to think all this through and understand it as literal history, because that's the way the Bible presents it, and yet it presents for us questions these days. We won't be able to answer or even address all of those questions. But here's what we will find. As we look at the first five days of creation specifically, as we look at Genesis 1, we're going to find the characteristics and the activities of our Creator God. And essentially what we're suggesting this morning is that the activity of God in creation continues today. It is the same God. He is the same God who acts today as He did undoubtedly in history. So let's dive in. Look with me in verse 3 of Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. What the Bible teaches is that everything came, Dave has already mentioned this this morning, everything came from God's spoken creative word. Here at the beginning, light is created. It's revealed on an unformed earth. If indeed the universe is old, the light was there, and yet God brought the light into the presence of the world. Or indeed, God perhaps, this is the creation of light. You say, well, how did light get created? Well, ultimately, God is light. When creation existed, the Bible says that he is the light. In Revelation chapter 21, it says the earth has no more need of sun or moon because God is the light. But he speaks light into darkness. Verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. I don't know what this status was. I don't know what the original form of the earth was in verse 2, but evidently we do know it was in darkness. And as a result of God's creative word, the light came upon that chaos as God began to reform and then fill the earth. I want you to notice first of all this morning, that our Creator God speaks. Do you see it there in verse 3? And God said, let there be light. God's speaking was efficacious. It was effective. It was powerful. One preacher said it this way, in creation, God's only tool was His Word. And His Word was sufficient to bring about the creation of the universe. There are at least three implications when we think about God's speaking or God's Word. First of all, obviously, the fact that God spoke these words. And in speaking the words, creation came about. So that's first. But also, when we think of the word, we can't help but think of what the Bible reveals about the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Because we read in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so he wasn't just with God as an associate, but in some way or another he was there and he was God. This is the mystery of the Trinity that we can't comprehend. And it's not explicitly revealed in Genesis 1, but it's clearly implied. Because you have God speaking creation into existence. Verse 2, you have the Spirit of God moving over the chaos of the original creation but then what we find later is that in speaking, there is an implication of the speaking words of God have to do with the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Word. And so you have the Father, you have the Spirit, and you have the Word, we would say Jesus Christ, as a result of His incarnation. And so there are hints, evidences, 
of the Trinity here. Now, don't misunderstand me. If all we had was Genesis 1, I'm not suggesting we would prove the Trinity from Genesis 1. But there are implications of the Trinity's presence here. And so you have the spoken Word of God, and then that brings to mind the Word of God, the eternal Word, God the Son. But also, when we think of the Word of God, what do we think of? We think of the Bible. God has given us His Word, His revelation. And what we find here is that there's this sense in which God said, quote-unquote, God said it sets the tone for all biblical revelation. All we know about God, all we know about the past, all we know about the future, it comes from the fact that God has made himself known, that God speaks, that God reveals himself. And so the first truth that we find out about our Creator is that our act of God speaks, and that is good. That is tov. That is beneficial for us, that God speaks. And he speaks in creation. He speaks in nature. He speaks in our hearts and our conscience. He especially speaks in his word. And he speaks in the person of the word who was incarnated into human flesh, Jesus Christ. God speaks, and that's good. But you notice in verse 4, the second element of the activity of God is that he also sees. You note that? It says, and God saw that the light was good. This is a God, this creator God, is one who sees, who hears, he knows. Now watch this carefully. Because our thinking about God, appropriately, we are finite, God is infinite. Our thinking about God can be fuzzy and unclear. And we can categorize the existence of God as some transcendent being who is so removed from our experience that he has nothing to do with us. And yet the text right here says that this is a God who not only speaks, but he's a God who sees. He's a God who knows. We would say he's a God who, e who hears. He doesn't have eyes. He is spirit. He doesn't have ears. He is spirit. But nevertheless, he is involved in his creation. He's not unconnected. He's not uninvolved. One of the first descriptors of God in the book of Genesis is the story of Hagar in chapter 16. And you remember the way she describes him? She says, you are a God who sees. You are a God who sees. And then you come to the story of Abraham and Isaac in chapter 22. And when Abraham takes Isaac as a, as a prospective sacrifice, and over and over again in that chapter it says, God sees, God saw, God looked, God watched. This is our God. Our God sees. And this gives us assurance. Our active creator God sees, and it gives us assurance that nothing escapes his perfect knowledge and awareness. Listen carefully. You are never unnoticed by God. You are never forgotten by God. You are never overlooked by God. Because he is infinite in a way that's incomprehensible to our finite minds, he is nevertheless one who sees and hears and knows. Our creator God, our active God, sees. And that's good. That's told. That's to our benefit. More happened on the first day. Look at your Bibles again. Look at verse 4, the middle of the verse. After God spoke and God saw, it says that God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
we learn more about our God here. First of all, our Creator God separates. He is the one who makes distinctions. Here He separates light from darkness. He begins, watch this, this is important. He begins by setting boundaries, by marking order, as opposed to whatever nebulous chaos was the state of the world, the earth, in verse number 2. He begins by separating light from darkness. And of course, there's plenty of separation all through this chapter. And we also understand that this God who makes distinctions, even before the fall, even before we know now that darkness is a symbolic presence of evil and light is the presence of good. But even before evil, even before evil existed in his creation, he was drawing separation. He was drawing boundaries. Later on, he's going to make a, a major issue of that which is clean as opposed to that which is unclean. Before long, we'll reach chapter 2 and we'll find that he even draws a separation before sin came into the world. He draws a separation from all the trees in one tree, remember? So there are boundaries that he draws. This is our God. He has the authority and the wisdom to make distinctions. In the best sense of the term, he discriminates. He separates. He sets boundaries. In the material world, ends up being reflective of the spiritual world, and especially after the fall, there is lightness, there is light and there is darkness, there is good and there is evil, and God is the one who draws boundaries. God is the one who determines the separation. Listen, ours is a God who separates, and wisdom is needed to make appropriate distinctions and boundaries in life but if you don't make those kinds of boundaries, if you don't pursue that kind of separation, then you are living without any wisdom. This is a hard pill to swallow in our current age, isn't it? That God draws boundaries. Let me say it this way. It's hard for us to accept the fact that God says no. We don't want to hear no. We don't want to hear it ourselves. We don't want to hear it in our culture. We don't want to hear it about our sexuality. We don't want to hear about our life choices. In our sinfulness, we reject this. We resist this. But at the very beginning, even before evil was there, God was separating and drawing boundaries. Our act of God separates, makes distinctions. And again, that is good. It's good that he does so. You come to verse 5 and you see another element of his activity. Our creator God also names. In verse 5 it says, He called the light day and the darkness he called night. Especially in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, when you name something, it implied authority or sovereignty. Uh, we find examples of this all through the Old Testament. If you want to look in 2 Kings 23, you have an example of a conquering king who renames a vanquished king. And it's his way of saying what? It's trash talking. It's like, I'm the victor. We're changing your name. But you understand the very idea of naming something is a presumptuous act. Think about this. We've got, we've got some families in our church, and a couple of them have unusual names. So we have Maeve. Maeve's name, I, I, I'm a terrible speller. I don't know if you, you wouldn't probably know that, but I have a really hard time spelling. And I can never figure out how to spell Maeve's name. 
And then you've got padrig. And I don't know that I say that right, besides the fact that I can't spell it. So just imagine with me, if we show up next week, and I say, you know, I was troubled about this thing with Maeve and Padraig, and I, I have trouble with their names, and so we're not going to call them Maeve or Padraig anymore. It's, Maeve is going to be Judy, <laughs> and Padraig is going to be Ralph. Now, if I said that, you all would be thinking, who does he think he is? <laughs> that he can rename somebody else's kid. Because we instinctively understand that when we name something, we are presuming and assuming some kind of authority or sovereignty. And you would say to me, if I begin to lobby for this name change, you would say appropriately, who do you think you are? Who does God think he is? When he calls the light day and the darkness night. He's the God who names. He's the God who is sovereign. He's the God who has authority. And that's implied in his creative acts and also in his willingness to name day and night and the other names that we find in this text. Our active God names in his sovereignty, in his authority over all things. And listen carefully, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that God has the sovereign nature and authority and inherent power that he can name. There's no one who equals him. There's no one who's on the same level. This is not a, some kind of nebulous force where there's a good side and a bad side. This is the God of heaven overall with absolute sovereignty to the extent that he is willing and able to name as he chooses. And of course, we'll see here in a few weeks that then he delegates that responsibility to Adam as well. Our creator God names. He actively assumes his sovereignty and authority over all things, and that's good. And there in verses 3 through 5 is day 1. Now, look with me at days two through four, and this will be frustratingly superficial for a few of you, and the rest of you will be relieved that I don't spend four sermons on these next few verses. But we will read a long text, so follow along with me again. In Genesis 1, we'll pick it up in verse 6, and we'll work through days two and four together. Verse 6 says, And God said, Let there be an expanse. The, the word in Hebrew has the idea of a vault. It, it's, it's, it's a reflective appearance, and, and the appearance is from the earth. God created an expanse. A, it's the idea of a divider. One preacher said, this is basically breathing space. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. Now, this is either God's creation of the water cycle or some have speculated over history that there was a dome of moisture that encircled the earth that then went away at the flood, was part of the cause of the flood. We don't know those things for sure. One way or another, this seems to be an implication of a separation between atmospheric water and the water on the earth. Look with me. And it was so, the end of verse 7. Verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven. 
But note, it was the sky as well as heaven. So heaven is a very elastic term, especially in Genesis 1. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Look in verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, again, by the power of God speaking. Verse 10, God called the dry land, here he names again, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. Now, can I just stop right here? And I want you to put yourself in the sandals of the children of Israel coming through the desert, the wilderness, at the shore of Canaan, and they were reading or hearing, read, this account of creation. I believe undoubtedly they knew it already, but now it was encapsulated in a written form. And this is the claim of the God of Israel, their God. This is the claim that everything came from him. As opposed to the cultures all around them, the Egyptians from whom they had escaped, the Canaanites in the land before who, whose land they stood. All of those cultures, essentially gods were territorial. There were battles and there were equalities and there were darkness. There were forces of darkness and forces of light, but the spiritual world was a chaotic nightmare of various gods and various powers, demons and gods, and gods that were arbitrary and gods that were fickle and gods that had to be appeased. And here, the people of Israel heard that their God, their creator God, is the one who made the seas and the earth to be what they are and named them such. It's an audacious claim. And could I just be careful with you here, but challenge you for a moment? It's such an audacious claim, it doesn't allow for half measures. You've got to deal with this. And if you don't believe that God is powerful enough to do what it says, then you have, you have redefined God. If you understand God as who he is, then he is powerful enough to do everything it says in Genesis 1. The end of verse 10, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. According to its kind, this is a post-random chaos. This is the designed order. This is the parameters of reproduction. Reproduction will be after its kind. Into verse 11, and it was so. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Verse 14, and God said, now watch here. There are different interpretations of verse 14 through 16, and that's fine. But I want you to note that there is geocentric language here. This is phenomenological language. It's the language from the appearance of the earth. Watch what he says. And God said, this is Moses writing, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Now, can you stop right there? Now, we know that the sun and the moon are in the heavens in the sense of the extended heavens, but they appear in our sky. And I told you earlier, heavens here is a very elastic term. But from the perspective of the earth, where do you find the sun and the moon? You find them in the heavens, in the expanse, as the, as the Jewish people would look up. So 
It says in verse 14, let, God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night. Many believe this is the creation and that God has left the earth without the sun and the moon for three days. I think it's more likely that the lights were there. You could translate the Hebrew here, let the lights in the expanse separate the day and the night. So that's a possible translation. One way or another, God sets the sun and the moon in place for specific reasons. And watch what he does. Watch the way it's described. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Now, let me just point out here. This is stunning to me. The sun and the moon are not named here. God does not specifically name them in the text. And they are not named by Moses. Why would that be? Because in the ancient world, the sun and the moon, they were worshipped. The sun and the moon were perhaps, along with the idea of fertility, but again, there was a knowledge that that came from the sun and, and all of weather. There was this sense of the sun and the moon were the ultimate gods of the cultures around them. They worshipped creation as opposed to the creator. And here, in the recounting of creation, you see what God is doing? I'm not even going to... I'm not even going to give them a name because they are created things, not gods. Again, almost like trash talk, right? Verse 16, and God made the two great lights. In other words, God and no one else. He's already said that. He's already said that. Moses has already said this. He's already told this account. And yet he stops to reiterate and it's as though he's saying, make no mistake about it. God and no one else made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And I think the stars, it almost is like an afterthought, one commentator said. Again, I think that's a geocentric view. Verse 17, and God set them. We'll come back to that. He placed them, the NASB says. And God placed in the expanse of the heavens he placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Again, this is from earth's perspective. To rule over the day and over the night. To separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now here is God's continuing activity in days two through four. And I want to point out two more activities of God that are contained in these verses. First of all, we find that God, our creator God, makes. He makes what he chooses to make. Do you see it in verse 7? Look back there. And God made the expanse. We believe that God is powerful enough to do so in six days. The days that are listed here, along with the numeral in Hebrew, always refers to a literal day, 24 hours. The term day can sometimes talk about a longer period of time, but when it's linked with a numeral, it's always a specific day. This is the plain reading of the text. I don't have all the specifics. I do know that if you want to explain the days away by making them long ages, you end up with far more problems than you do with acknowledging that God created in six days. What you find here, even though some of the specifics are inaccessible to us, you find, and don't miss this, that God created with ordered complexity and he also created through his omnipotent power. 
if your response to reading about verses day and four verses excuse me verses if you your response to reading about days 2 through 4 if your response is that couldn't happen you're saying more about your view of god than you are about your understanding of nature this is our god who makes and the bible affirms this it's not just genesis 1 it's not just a supposed ignorance by Moses wandering around in the desert. We have John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Is God still making, still creating? Well, in a sense, perhaps you could say He is. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read this. The Son upholds the universe by the power of His Word. By the word of his power. In a sense, every single morning, you remember what the Old Testament says? Every single morning, your mercies are new. God is still making, he's still creating. Our active God makes, and that's good. And if you have questions about that, let me suggest you get up really early tomorrow morning and drive up to Shoreline Park and just keep your eyes to the west and watch the sunrise and come away without any sense of your insignificance, right? And the power of our creator God and the beauty of our creator. Our active God is still making and that's, watch this, good. It's good that he is still active. Also, especially down here in this challenging text about the establishment of the sun and the moon. In verse 17, you notice I pointed it out. It says, and God set them or placed them in the expanse of the heavens. God, our creator God, ordains. He places. He ordains things as they are. He set them in place. God has a purpose. God has a plan. He is not random. It is not haphazard. And by the way, you recognize this gives us the possibility of science itself. The, and previous centuries of scientists understood this. The reason you could study and make suppositions and develop theories and then test the theories was because there was order to the world. There was design. They considered themselves, nearly all of them, considered themselves discoverers of God's complexity that he had built into creation. This is the God who ordains. There's a movement today called intelligent design by scientists who, for whatever reason, don't want to identify with the biblical account of creation. But when they look at the evidence, they say the idea that it is random and haphazard is literally impossible because there is design hard-baked into creation. And they're right. Now, if you're listening to this, and I begin talking about God's ordaining power and his purpose and his plan, then one of the questions you start to ask is, what about all the bad stuff? I mean, where is God when my life has fallen apart? Where is God when a tragedy takes place? Where is God in an earthquake? Where is God in a tsunami? Where is God in a, in a war, in a terrorist attack? And those are not illegitimate questions. But again, if you don't have the book of Genesis, you don't have the answer to that question. 
Because the answer to that question shows up in chapter 3. It shows up in the fall. It shows up in the, in the cataclysmic result of disobedience to God. And it shows up historically in the fall. And it shows up experientially in our own DNA that we are born in sin. And we choose rebellion in and of ourselves. And it also shows up in this world. And if you could say it this way, the DNA of this world is now twisted and perverted because of sin and cursed. And therefore, there are terrible things that happen. Not because God is out of control but because God is dealing with the issue of sin, disobedience, and rebellion. Our Creator God ordains, He plans, He purposes in His providence, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Well, finally this morning, let's look at at least a portion of day five. Pick it up in verse 20 of chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms. That is one of the best translations in the ESV. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them. To bless means to enrich or to endow, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the middle of the sixth day, and we'll stop there for this morning. But God is still active. First of all, the text uses the term God created. Do you see that? It's in verse 21. And God created the great sea creatures. The word is fairly rare. It's only used in this chapter three times. It's used in verse one for the creation of all the universe. It's used here in verse 21, the creation of animal life. And then we'll see it again in verse 26 next week with the creation of Adam and Eve. To create doesn't necessarily mean to create out of nothing. The word is used both ways. But I told you last week, let me reiterate, the term create in Hebrew, there's only one subject. It's God. Man doesn't create in the technical sense. God creates. God is the one who has the power. He is the creator. Now think about that this morning. Just stop. He is the absolute. This is the book of Genesis. You go to the book of Revelation. Here's the terminology in the book of Revelation. I am the Alpha and Omega, the what? Beginning and end. God is ultimate. He is infinite. He is transcendent yet imminent. He is, he is above and beyond all of creation, and yet he has chosen to engage and be involved with his creation. He is creator. He creates and he has no competitors. Not Satan, for sure. Not all of those false gods. Not demonic forces. 
Surely not the problems of nature, the disasters of nature. None of these are competitors to the Creator God. Derek Kidner said it this way, God might have rebels in His kingdom, but He surely has no rivals. He may have rebels, but God has no rivals. And He still creates. At the very least, He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And we've read about that in Revelation. And so He will, this creation, this very good creation that we're reading about in Genesis 1, which in the matter of a few weeks, when we look at chapter 3, we find that it gets ruined through rebellion and disobedience. It's not as though God walks away and says, I give up on that project. Because right now he is still in the process of bringing about redemption. And one day he will bring about the consummation, the restoration of all things. God is still the one who creates. Our act of God creates. And he especially creates when he creates life from the dead. And that brings us to our last point. Our creator God blesses. You see it in verse 22. It says, and God blessed the creatures. And we're going to see next week that he especially blesses Adam and Eve. God is love. And despite what is to come in the book of Genesis, he never forsakes his promises. He never forsakes his own. The Old Testament has a concept called loyal love or loving kindness, but it's deeper than that. It's this sense of God's love that is so committed, he will not let us go. This is the kind of God we have. This is his blessing. And this is the truth of the gospel. That despite the rebellion that has cursed all of us and has made us guilty before this God, he loves us so much that he will forgive us through the death and life of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel is not, you've got to do better because God's angry with you. The message of the gospel is you have no hope because God is angry with you. And yet he has given a rescuer. He has given a redeemer. He has sent a savior in Jesus Christ. And we are not talking about some kind of superficial asking Jesus into your heart kind of prayer. We're talking about a yielding of yourself to where you admit your guilt and sin and you put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Acknowledging your sin before God, but believing that God is willing to take away your sin and your guilt through His Son, Jesus Christ. We'd love to help you with that decision if you've yet to commit to it or you don't understand it. This is our God. He blesses. He calls everything good in the original creation. Have you ever thought about how sad it must be to feel thankful but not believe in anyone to be grateful to? I think about this at Thanksgiving every year. Because there are people who talk about Thanksgiving and they, they talk about some sense of appreciation, but to whom? To whom are they giving thanks? We understand that we have a God who in spite of the hurt in this world, in spite of our own rebellion, in spite of our own willfulness, we have a God who blesses. And that's what we're going to find all the way through Genesis. 
there's a sense in which this is the subject of Genesis. What does God do with people who ruin his good creation? And we find that he is gracious. He judges those who are rebellious. But for any who will repent and believe, he blesses. And he does not forsake them. Our act of God blesses. And just like everything else, that is good. It remains good. This is our God. Our God in the gospel and in Jesus Christ especially, our God still speaks. He still sees through his spirit. He still separates in his word. He still names in his sovereignty and authority. He still makes in his power. He ordains in his providence. He creates through his blessed creative power, especially creating new life in the gospel. And our creator God blesses And we come around every Sunday, don't we? We come around every Sunday and some of us stumble through the week and some of us are here on a high because we've had such a blessed week. But one way or another, we come and we find the blessing of God in gathering with regular everyday people. Some of the people we might not even really like that well. But God calls us together and we lift up his name in praise and we humble ourselves under the teaching of his word and we sing praises and we give and we serve with one another. We experience, once again, his blessing. And this is what God has designed. I'm getting ahead of myself preaching Sabbath truths, but let me go ahead and tell you, this is the reason God has designed this kind of gathering. Because if we didn't have it, how easily would we forget the blessing of our good God? We have to stop and we have to sing, praise God, from whom all blessings even if in our heart of hearts, our hearts are breaking and weighed down with burden, we still acknowledge God in his goodness, this God who blesses. So, here's what all of this means for us. We are never forsaken and never forgotten. We are never forsaken and never forgotten. Because we have a God who speaks, sees, distinguishes, names, makes, ordains, creates, and blesses. That's the message of Genesis 1. Our active God, he's still at work. And because of his faithfulness, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are never forsaken or forgotten. Let's pray together. Father, so many things in this text remain mysteries to us. We don't have answers to some of the tensions that we're left with. But help us, Father, see beyond those this morning and recognize what is clearly revealed. That you are not only the creator God, but you remain active in our world and through your Holy Spirit and the gospel active in our lives. This is a glorious truth 
and it is a grounding for our hope that we know that we, in Jesus Christ, in your forgiveness, that we are never forsaken, we are never forgotten. There are members of our church family who particularly need this truth right now today. They need this truth to be brought home into their minds and driven deep into their hearts. And I pray through your Holy Spirit you would do so. I pray you would do so for all of us. Remind us that this is never a ground for apathy, for carelessness, surely never for carnality or sinfulness. But this assurance of your forgiveness, the assurance that we are never forsaken or forgotten, should draw us close to you and should produce within us a desire for holiness and faithfulness to walk in trust and obedience. Father, through your Spirit, do these works we're not capable of on our own. And we pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.